Last week, I began my message by referring to a few statements in the 2022 State of Theology, a joint polling survey put out by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research. In that survey, they attempted to put their pulse on the American culture and the American church. The... um, The survey was a series of statements, and they asked the respondents to to, um, either strongly affirm, somewhat affirm, somewhat disaffirm. No, actually what they said is strongly agree with those statements, somewhat agree, somewhat disagree, or strongly agree on on this continuum. There were 3,000-plus American adults that took, pay place, that t- took part in this survey, of which um, uh, approximately a-, a quarter of them, 25%, identified themselves as evangelical Christians. Here is one statement in their study. I printed it in your notes. It is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, of the self-identified evangelicals in this survey, 99% of them strongly agreed with that statement. All right? I'd like to put alongside that the result of another survey. This one done a number of years ago by uh, Christianity Today magazine. Um, They were doing a survey on evangelism, and they asked their readers if they witnessed recently, in quotation marks, recently. Now, a couple of caveats here. Um, I I am trusting that the readership of Christianity Today is largely evangelical so that we're able to compare apples with apples, so to speak, and and we are able to fairly glue these two um, surveys together. I also have to make note that the Christianity Today survey uh, used the very ambiguous word, recently. I witnessed recently. Now, they allowed their respondents to define for themselves what recently meant. So, recently could mean within the last year or within the last 24 hours. We don't know exactly what the reader was thinking when they responded to that survey. But let's, let's assume these, these things, and, and let's assume that we can put these two surveys together. In the Christianity Today survey, among their readership, they found that there was only 1% of their readership said that they witnessed recently, in, in quotations, Now, even if, even if there, there is a, a little bit of, of skewing here that we're not able to fuse these two survey results together tightly, 
still there is an enormous disconnect between what evangelicals say they, they know they ought to be about and actually doing something about it. I find in our text this morning um, ample encouragement to be involved in what God has called us to do just by way of a reminder. This is what the Lord has called us to do. Matthew chapter 28, the last verses of the first epistle. Jesus says, Go therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, that first word that I read from Matthew 28, verse 19, the word go is actually a participle. And we could translate it, while you are going, or when you are going, or wherever you are going, it has the force of an imperative, a command, make disciples. That's our mandate. That's what God has has called us to do. 1 Peter chapter 2. We find the Apostle Peter saying the same things, different words. In verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Pause it for just a minute and just reflect on the, the glory, the wonder, the amazement of how God has worked in our lives. And here's why. This is our life purpose. God has chosen you, established you, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is our purpose statement. God has saved us, redeemed us, welcomed us into his presence so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Think with me for just a minute about my responsibility to proclaim. I I have a responsibility as a believer in Christ to proclaim the work of Jesus in the world and the work of Jesus in my life. You'll see those two sub-points as part of the introduction in your notes. I am here to proclaim Jesus' work in the world, Jesus' work in my life. Now, it's, 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 it's quite common, actually, that people use the word evangelism and witnessing as though they're synonyms. They're not. 
they refer to two different things. They're two distinctly different things. To be involved in evangelism is to proclaim what Jesus has done in the world. When I am witnessing, when I am testifying, I am specifically proclaiming that which Jesus has done in my life. The word evangelism, let's look at those uh, separately. The, the word evangelism is related to the word evangel, literally meaning good message. This is, how we, this is where we get the word gospel. It is a good message. It is God's good message. Um, I, 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 I don't want to oversimplify God's message, but it is very simple. It can be boiled down to four words. Jesus died for sinners. When I am given the responsibility to proclaim what Jesus has done in the world, it is that simple. I am called to not only um, wrap my mind around that message, but to be able to express it, to communicate it. Let me, let me tear it down for you just, just, just to, 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 to clarify some things and to give you some verses. This is an outline for you in your testifying, your proclaiming Jesus' work in the world. Let's work backwards. Jesus died for, let's start here, for sinners. To be a sinner is to miss God's mark. It is to um, be a rebel. It is to uh, go off and do my own thing. It it is to be self-absorbed in my own little world. And the scripture says that's sin. That, that, that is rebellion against God. That is going against everything that God has, has, has put in place. I am a sinner. I am a transgressor of God's law. When we talk about God's law, we, 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 we can talk about the Ten Commandments. When you talk to, to um, unsaved friends, strangers, What they need is God's law. They need to be confronted with the truth of God's law, specifically that they are a sinner. You might say to an unsaved um, neighbor, family member, even a stranger, have you ever said something that's not true? Well, if you have, you violated the ninth commandment. And the Bible calls you a liar. Have you ever taken something that didn't belong to you? If you have, you've violated the eighth commandment. And the Bible calls you a thief. Have you ever looked at another person with with lust in your heart. Jesus says that that you have broken the spirit of the seventh commandment. And in your heart, you're an adulterer. Have you ever um, hated another person 
in your heart? Well, if you have, you, you have broken the spirit of the sixth commandment. It says, thou shalt not murder. No, you didn't pull out a gun. No, you didn't pull out a knife. No, you didn't take their life. Jesus says, you have broken the spirit of that law. And in your heart, you're a murderer. First and foremost, an unbeliever, before he will turn to Christ, has to be convinced that he's a sinner, that he has a need that he can't fix. And so we turn to him. Well, this is the purpose of the law. Um, Romans chapter 3 uh, it tells us all, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. And in, in chapter 6, verse 23 uh, of that same book, Paul says, the, the wages of sin is death. The payment I earn for my rebellion against God, my transgression of God's law, is death. And we see that in, in, in physical death. Every person who has ever lived on planet Earth will, will die physically. It is a sign, a declaration by God that he takes sin Seriously, we are all sinners. C.H. Spurgeon said, I, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. The law is the needle. And you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send a sharp needle of the law to make way for it. Jesus died for Sinners. Second, Jesus died for sinners. That, that, that delicious little word for means on behalf of, in the place of. It refers to an act of substitution. Jesus died in the place of sinners. Now, now there's, there's some things that, that have to take place here. Um, th- this kind of substitution um, has to be perfect. This, this substitute, rather, has to be morally flawless. This substitute has to be in kind, and it has to be accepted. Let me explain that. This substitute has to be um, morally flawless, perfect, uh, sin-free, else that substitute, when he dies, is going to suffer for his own crimes against God. So he has to be morally flawless. Second, he has to be in kind, meaning he has to be a man. Uh, the sacrifice of an animal is inadequate. The sacrifice of some kind of supernatural being like an angel, uh, they can't die. But he, let's say, hypothetically, they could. Um, that would be insufficient. It has to be in like kind. And it has to be accepted. God the Father has to sign off on it to say, I will accept that offering, that life, as a substitution for these sinners. 
direct your attention to Isaiah 53. Verse 11 um, says, As a result of the anguish of the son's soul, speaking of, of the suffering servant that is, is, is sent by the father to die, as a result of the anguish of his soul, God the Father will see it and be satisfied. By the Father's knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, the Son, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. So when Jesus comes, he comes perfect, in like kind, an acceptable sacrifice for the Lord, or, or, or by the Father, such that Jesus died for, on behalf of, sinners. Third point. Jesus died. God is fair. He is just. He cannot sweep sin under the proverbial rug and ignore it. He has to deal with it. He must deal with it. Indeed, he does deal with it. What's shocking in this whole discourse is that God would offer himself to those who were his enemies, those who hated him. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Third, no fourth. Jesus is the one who died for sinners. It's 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 very personal, it's very specific. He is identified as the substitute. Matthew chapter 1 at the first uh, in anticipation of the first Christmas. The angel appears to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this knowledge about who Jesus is and why he came and why he offered himself as a substitute and for whom did he offer himself? Sinners. All of this is applied by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We have no grounds to say, God, I earned this, I deserve this. No, all that he does for us in Christ is purely, freely a gift, a gift of grace. Even our faith is a gift by God. All right, so... When we're just by way of review, when we're talking about evangelism, we are talking about a proclamation of who Jesus is and what he has done in this world. To be involved in evangelism has nothing to do with the results. 
The results are God's business. I am simply here to proclaim the news. I, I, am, I am the boy on the street corner in the 1930s saying, get the latest edition, here it is. And he announces, he proclaims what the news is. That's my responsibility. Secondly, I have the responsibility to proclaim what Jesus has done in my life. Now, this is very important. This is what we might call pre-evangelism. This, this is where I give my testimony of, of how God has worked in my life. Now, my testimony is unique to me. Um, there may be crossovers, and there may be ways that you can say, wow, if, uh, I, my, my life is so much like that. Or if he can do that in your life, maybe he can do this in my life. There is an, an important place for a word of testimony to unsaved people. And I, I would strongly encourage you, if you've never written out your testimony, your salvation testimony of how you came to faith in Christ, do so. Write it out word for word. Make it uh, some three to five minutes. Memorize it. Take it. I, I urge you to, to take it to um, the speech coach I live with. That's what she does, is, is help people sharpen, focus, persuade of the truth, the power of things like God's work in my life. Hmm. The, uh, the gentleman in... in uh, John chapter 9, whose life we've been looking at recently, his testimony we find in John 9, verse 25. Um, Here's his testimony in one sentence. Though I was blind, now I see. Short, simple, to the point. Is, is, that, is that all there is to his testimony? Oh, no, there's, there's more. There is the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. And we're going to look at that this morning. Let me, just for review purposes, um, say that this, this, this man, um, uh, a blind beggar, was, was born blind. He, he had um, no knowledge of what sight was like. And completely unexpectedly, this guy shows up, spits in the dirt, makes mud, sticks it on his face, and says, go wash. Uh, oh, 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 okay. And so he does. And <laughs> he's healed. You know, it's appropriate for the, for, that we use that word healed. Um, but but it kind of implies that there, there was something there that's not working right and now it works right okay. 
It may be that this man, born blind, did not even have eyes in his sockets. It may be that he had no optic nerve to to transmit the image from his eye to his brain. It may be that he had no capability in his brain to process and understand those visual images that were appearing in in his brain. And instantly, all of that was brought into being. Well, the religious leaders that uh, heard about this were miffed that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And because this man wouldn't admit that Jesus was had to be a sinner, they kicked him out of the synagogue. This is where our story continues in John chapter 9, verse 35. Read the rest of the chapter with me. Jesus heard that they, that is the religious leaders, had put him out, put him out of the synagogue. And finding him, Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. Second page of your notes. There's two conversations that are going on in these these, uh, last verses of John chapter 9. First, Jesus is talking with the uh, formerly blind beggar, and Jesus leads him to faith. And secondly, Jesus challenges the lack of faith in the Pharisees, the religious leaders that are there listening in, eavesdropping, and Jesus confronts them in their unbelief. So first, let's, let's talk about the, the, uh, uh, the man who was born blind, now healed. Before we get to the text in verse 35, I, I want you to, just in your mind, think about what this man may have been dealing with emotionally. Think with me back over this chapter. Jesus comes up to this guy unexpectedly. This, this man wasn't crying out to Jesus for, for help or for a miracle. It was, he, he didn't even know anything about Jesus. He was simply hanging out, probably had a cardboard sign saying, um, uh, please help, I'm, I'm whatever, I'm whatever you'd say on his little signboard. 
And Jesus comes up, spits in the dirt, puts his stuff on his face. He tells him to go wash. And he is seeing now for the first time. Can you imagine what that might have been like? He would have been so hungry for other people to celebrate with him. Would he not? I can't believe this. I can see, I can see your face. I know what you look like now. I know what a tree looks like, and I, I, I know what clouds are like. Wow. He would have wanted those people to celebrate with him. And when he went home to his neighborhood, his neighbors celebrated with him. Oh, no, they didn't. Oh, when he was, he was at home, probably his mom was just saying, son, give me all of the details. But then when the religious leaders came by and they asked mom and dad about particulars here, they threw their son under the bus. Acted as though they had no knowledge of anything that transpired, even though he gave them the blow by blow. And then there's the religious leaders. They were not only not celebrating, but they were so hostile, they wanted to kill Jesus, and they cast him out of the synagogue, the center of of religious life and social life. Out. So, so, So this... Formerly, blind man had no one. He was by himself. But it was here, at that moment in his life, that Jesus found him. That's just like our Lord. Text tells us Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him... Dot, dot, dot. That's what Jesus does. He finds lost sheep. He finds blind people. They had no idea what sight is like. He finds people that are desperate, needy, mourning over their sin, hungry for truth, for righteousness. Those are the kind of people that Jesus finds. Listen to um, Psalm 27, verse 10. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Oh, yeah. That's the work of our God. He finds us. He receives us. Now, before we, 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 we press on, I, I want to impress upon you the importance of Jesus taking the initiative to find this man. This is how God works with all of us. He takes the initiative. I'm not hunting for Jesus. I'm blind. I'm groping. I'm trying to make, make life work somehow. But Jesus is the one who comes and finds us. Jonah says it very succinctly in chapter 2 of, of, uh, of his letter, or his, uh, his book. 
where he says, salvation is of the Lord. There it is. It is a God thing. And so we could, we could look at our, our justification, we could look at our glorification, and we could affirm salvation is indeed of the Lord. He's the one who makes it happen. If God doesn't work, it doesn't happen. And so we read in, um, in John's Gospel, Chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me. He doesn't have the ability. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John chapter 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Always, God is the one who takes the initiative. He finds sinners. Jesus came seeking and saving the lost. All right, so this is, this is what we find at the end of verse 35. Jesus heard they put him out, finding him. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, we, we, have, an, we have a disadvantage here. We have the whole Bible to look at. And we, we can see both New Testament and Old Testament. We can read and, and, and understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. The title Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. To a large degree, because in first century Judaism, it was not used. When you look back at Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14... It is clearly a title of divinity. But in first century Judaism, it wasn't used. It didn't mean that it didn't mean that. But first century Jews didn't think of Messiah in, in that kind of a category. They didn't use that kind of language, the Son of Man. So Jesus uses something a little Mm, a little different, a little uh, avant-garde. Um, he, he, didn't, he didn't use the, the, the tried-and-true um, labels and titles for Messiah so that there wasn't a lot of excess baggage he had to deal with. He went with this somewhat mysterious understanding. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, this formerly blind man was no dummy. He was uneducated in uh, the ways of, uh, uh, of Judaism. He, there wasn't any Braille back then. So all that he learned, he, had, he learned because somebody told him. He knew this. He knew that only God could give sight. And he knew that Messiah would give sight. He was one who had received sight. Ergo, he knew what the result was. It was God who, through Messiah, healed him. 
This man knew Jesus was talking about Messiah when he talked about the Son of Man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36, and he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? I want to know. I, I know that he's the one who healed. He's, he's the ultimate giver of this good gift that I have received. Who is he? I, I want to say thank you. Now, before we continue, I want, I want to point something out. Verse 36. He, he, he asks this question, Who is he, comma, Lord? You see that? Um, now, in the New American Standard text, the word Lord is capitalized. Now, that's not necessarily incorrect. When I speak of Jesus as the Lord, it is correct to capitalize that. However, this man doesn't have a full understanding of who he's talking to yet. The vocative Lord can also be understood Sir or Lord with a lowercase l, meaning that he is being very respectful of Jesus. Who is he, sir? I, I, I would like to honor him. Would, would you please identify him for me? That's the, that's the flavor of, of his, his question. I, I want to believe I know what's happened to me. I know what he's done. I want to bring it to fulfillment. I want to know who this guy is. Verse 37. So Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. Notice how Jesus... Well, let me say this first. Jesus very easily could have said, I'm the guy. Or he could have said even more simply, I am. Uh, he didn't. He, he says something different, and he says something more. Notice that he, 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 he capitalizes on the man's senses. You have seen him, and you're hearing him right now. Now, the verb at the, at the beginning of, of his statement, you have seen, that word uh, the, translated have seen is in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means that the perfect tense indicates, it denotes something's happened in the past that has results in the present. Jesus says to this, this, this formerly blind man, you have seen. Okay, you get that. Now, when was the first time this man put his eyes on Jesus, his, his physical eyes on Jesus? At this moment. And yet Jesus says, you have seen. Past tense. With results in the present. In other words, Jesus is saying, to this man, you have seen me before. Though you were blind, you saw me 
when I mixed my saliva with the mud, put it on your eyes, told you to go wash in the pool of Siloam, you saw me even in your blindness. Jesus is talking about his soul. He's talking about seeing Jesus spiritually. He he knew he had a need. Jesus addressed that need. He saw him spiritually. And now you see me physically. Well, in response, this, 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 this man can't speak the words fast enough or get on his knees fast enough. Verse 38. Lord, ah, same word that we found in verse 36. This one appropriately refers to Jesus as God. So it is appropriate it be capitalized at least. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus received that worship. Only God receives worship. Only God is worthy to be worshipped. And this formerly blind man understood who it was that was before him, and he knelt in worship. Wow. Now, there's a a change in conversation, point number two. Jesus now begins to address the religious leaders that are tailing Jesus. Um, They're... They're, they're wondering what, what, what's going on between these two. They've, they've kicked out this, this man. So um, in, in one sense, they would have a right to kick out Jesus because he's associating with this excommunicated man. They're, t- they're tailing Jesus. And Jesus says to them, verse 39, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Now let's look at the first portion of that verse. Uh, first, verse, verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world. Well, keep, keep your, your, your finger here. We'll go right back to it. In chapter 3, just a, a couple pages ago, In John chapter 3, verse 17, we read this. These are the words of Jesus as well. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so there are some people who say, well, see, there's a contradiction here. Jesus says in John 3, he didn't come to judge. And yet here in chapter 9, he says, for judgment I came. Well, which is it? Well, there's no contradiction here at all. When Jesus came on his first advent, he came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.10. Jesus came for the purpose of finding those lost sheep 
and giving up his life for them. It was as though Jesus drew a line in the sand. And those whom he had chosen, those he was calling unto himself, those who would believe are going to step across the line. There was a resultant consequence of that action that there are some who don't cross over the line. Now, in a theological sense, we could say that that Jesus passed over them. From a human point of view, we could say those people had no interest. They were uh, not convinced they were sinners, not convinced that they, they needed a substitute, not convinced that maybe even Jesus existed or that he died. They didn't, they didn't care about that. For judgment, I came into this world. This is, this is what naturally happens as a result of Jesus taking care of his own, his own sheep. The resulting consequence is that there are others who will be left behind. And upon his second advent, they will be judged. For judgment, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. What Jesus says here is, very much in keeping with the reason why he taught so many of, of, uh, uh, so many times using parables. I direct your attention to Matthew 13. Jesus explains to his disciples, I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. So Jesus is saying, with with their eyes, the, the images come in, but it doesn't register in their mind. And they're hearing all of these sounds in their ears, but it doesn't register in their mind. They don't understand. They have no clue what's going on. And Jesus says, that's why I teach in parables like this. So that those who think they see, don't see at all. And those who think they hear, don't really hear. They don't understand. They're clueless. Verse 16 of Matthew 13. But blessed are your eyes, he says to his disciples, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. Now, the religious leaders in John chapter 9 are not so blessed. They have physical sight, but they are spiritually blind. They think they see, but they don't see. They think they hear, but they don't hear. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul uh, speaks to the, the, the Jew that he, he has in his mind as he's writing this letter. This is what the Jews think of themselves. Verse 19 of Romans 2. You are confident that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, 
a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You think you see. You think you hear. You think you understand. But you don't. Verse 40 in our text. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said, We are not too, we, we are not blind too, are we? Now, Jesus, come on. Get real. You, you're not, you are not saying that we really are clueless, are you? I mean, we know the law backwards and forwards. We can teach it to you if you'd sit down and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get you straightened out. We are the corrector of the foolish. We are the ones who guide the blind. You're not saying that we, we are people that need to come to you for sight, are you? You couldn't possibly be saying that. Jesus says to them, verse 41, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. What Jesus is getting at is this. Those people who know they are lost who know they are blind, who know they don't see the light, those people are the ones who are so eager, so willing to believe. that They want to know Him who is the light. They want to connect with this Son of Man who who frees them from the bondage of darkness. They want to believe. Those people that do come to the Lord on His terms. They humble themselves. They are broken inside. There's no pride that's been stripped out of them. They know they're blind. They know they're headed nowhere They know they're groping in the dark. These are the ones who come to Jesus, and these are the ones that are saved. These are the ones who have no sin because their sin has been forgiven. On the contrary, those who say, we see, they don't come to Christ. They don't have a need for Christ, or so they perceive. They're okay. They are content in their spiritual situation. Tragically so. And their sin remains. Because they don't see a need for Jesus. Now elsewhere in the scriptures we we, we find this, this spiritual complacency wrapped up in other words. In... um, Uh, Mark chapter 3, we read about about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's this. That is rejecting Christ, having no no needs, perceiving that there's, there's no urgency, there's no reason for a person to come to Christ. That person doesn't need Christ. That person is 
rebuking the, um, the work of the Holy Spirit. He is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, saying, I don't need what you're offering. In John's first epistle, chapter 5, he talks about the sin unto death. That's what we're talking about here. Different words, same concept. Now, it must be said that the Old Testament does give us light in the darkness. But compared with the megawatt brightness of Christ, the light in the Old Testament is but a dim nightlight. We need the light of Christ. Now let me um, uh, let me spend a little bit of time uh, applying this specifically to our evangelizing and witnessing two different things efforts. Um, first, you fill in the blanks here as we go. Take the initiative. Take the initiative. Blind people often don't know that they need help need, or, or, or have any sense of hope that there's uh, light someplace or that this, this enslavement to darkness can go away. It's depending upon us who know the light, have walked in the light, to point them to the light. And... and and that's our calling, that's, that, that's our mandate, that's our responsibility before the Lord, is to testify to what we know to be true, of what Jesus is and, and has done in the world and how he has worked in my life. Um, take the initiative. If, if you have 30 seconds, take the initiative to speak a word of truth. Um, let's do it right now. Who's, who's, got a, who's got a watch? Tracy, you got a watch? No, you have, that's not a hand. Okay, time me, 30 seconds. Okay, what can I say in 30 seconds? I, I'm standing in line. What can, I, what can I do? What can I say in 30 seconds? Ready? Time me. Hi, my name's Rob. Um, may I ask you a personal question? Have you ever said something that wasn't true? Taken something that wasn't yours? Said something hateful? Those are just three of the Ten Commandments. Here's my question to you. What will you do with your guilt? There's only one person that can cleanse our heart and remove our problem of sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. May I tell you more? 30 seconds? 40. Okay. Something as simple as that. You can do that. 
Oh, if I, and if I worked hard, harder at it, I could get under 30 seconds too. Um, that's, that's my calling. I have told you the story before, 1962 World, uh, World Series, famous uh, a clash between San Francisco uh, Giants and the New York Yankees. Uh, the Giants had a, a uh, base runner on second base, and Bobby Richardson was the Yankees' second baseman. Uh, there was a pause in the game, a change of pitcher, and Richardson looked at that as an opportunity. Christian man, he, he walked over to the man standing on second base, and he asked him about his relationship with the Lord Jesus. When the base runner got back to the dugout, he asked one of his teammates, Felipe Alou, um, um, he, he says, um, even in the seventh game of the World Series, you people are still talking about Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Always taking the initiative to talk about the most important person, most important decision anybody's going to make ever. What will you do with Jesus? Second, direct the conversation. Direct the conversation back to Jesus. Oh, so frequently I've, 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 I've had so many conversations with unsafe people and they'll, they'll, they'll start off on a rabbit trail. Yeah, but what about, and what about, sometimes those rabbit trails are legitimate. So they, they, they've got layers of darkness, layers of objections that they need to process and you may be a good good person to, to begin processing that. And that's important. Uh, but sometimes it's just a smokescreen because they really don't want to deal with something a little uncomfortable and as pointed as sin and judgment is. Keep directing the conversation back to Jesus because that's where it's all got to focus on. Here in John chapter 9, let me direct your eyes to a couple of verses. Um, in uh, chapter 9, verse 11, he identifies Jesus simply as, a, as the man. He didn't know Jesus well, initially. In his conversation with the religious leaders, they asked him about Jesus. And in verse 17, he says, well, he's a prophet. Okay. Um, he, he's one who speaks for God, in other words. All right, a little while later, um, st- still in his conversation with the religious leaders, but, but there's, there's been um, um, some, some time that's passed by, and he's rethinking his, his understanding of Jesus. Verse 33, he, he recognizes that Jesus is a man from God. Oh, you see, you see progress here in his understanding of Jesus. In, um, in, in verse 38, he understands he is nothing less than God Almighty in human flesh. That's the kind of progress that we, we want to we point um, unbelievers to. Um, third, 
Look for evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. Look for evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. It's um, God's responsibility to draw lost people unto himself. Jesus says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. Um, and so there's things that we look for when we, we are, are, are wondering, are curious. Um, is, is the Lord actively involved in drawing this person to himself? Is this person crushed by the weight of his or her sin? Does this person mourn because of their sin? Is this person hungry for righteousness, thirsty for righteousness? Do they want something better than the blind life they have been living in? Is this person one who is um, actively trusting, believing, confidently believing in Christ alone? Is this person eager, willing to worship the Word of God? The Word, not, not, not is in the Bible. We want, we want them to be hungry for this, but, but I'm talking about the, the Word incarnate, Jesus. Are, are they worshiping the Lord? These are some of the things that we are, um, uh, we are, we are, we are looking for. All right, well, we started here this morning with this statement. It is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Um, indeed it is. Make that your resolve. I make that my resolve. To speak the truth of Christ boldly, Confidently, um, it's, it's not my message. I'm simply the errand boy. I'm simply the delivery man. But I have that responsibility. And having done my responsibility of, of proclaiming who Jesus is, what he's done in the world, and um, what he has done in my life, I leave the results in his hand. I'm not responsible for somebody trusting Christ. I'm simply responsible to proclaim the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our blessed God, we thank you for the privilege that's ours to look into the scriptures. We thank you for this this, this blind beggar who was touched in a gracious way by the Lord Jesus, that we might learn from it and be exhorted to proclaim the excellencies of this one who has called us out of darkness. May you be praised in all things and your kingdom established. In the name of the risen Christ, we pray. Amen.